With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Was probably the result of undisciplined excitement. The Japanese fired a few shots in reply, but no harm was done on either side. Rajdasvinsky, who had kept the guns of his flagship silent, signaled ammunition not to be wasted, and the firing ceased in five minutes, just as the Japanese turned slowly and increased their distance. Orders were now signaled for the men of the Russian fleet to have their dinners, and the officers lunched in turn. The harmless skirmish encouraged some of the Russian crews with the idea that they had been in action and were none the worse, and had driven the Japanese away. At noon the fleet was due south of Tsushima, which towered like a mountain out of the sea a few miles ahead. The signal was hoisted, change course north 23 degrees east for Vladivostok. It was the anniversary of the Tsar's coronation. Round the wardroom tables in his doomed fleet, the officers stood up and drank with enthusiasm to the Emperor, the Empress, and victory for Russia. The cheering had hardly died down when the bugle sounded the alarm. Everyone hurried to his post. The enemy's cruisers had again shown themselves, this time accompanied by a flotilla of destroyers, that came rolling through the rough sea with the waves foaming over their bows. On a signal from the Admiral, the four leading battleships turned to starboard and stood towards the enemy, then reformed line ahead on a course parallel to the rest of the fleet and slightly in advance of it. The Japanese, on the threat of attack, had turned also and went off at high speed to the northwards. At 1.20 p.m., the Admiral signaled to the next four ships of the fleet to join the line of battleships, forming astern of them. The Russian armada was now well into the wide eastern strait of Tsushima, and far ahead through the mist a crowd of ships could be dimly seen. The crisis was near at hand. On receiving the first wireless message from the Shinano Maru at daybreak, Togo had weighed anchor and come out of Musampo Bay, with his main fleet steering east so as to pass just to the north of Tsushima. He had with him his twelve armored ships, and Rear Admiral Uryu's division of protected cruisers, Naniwa, Takichiko, Tsushima, and Akashi, and a strong flotilla of destroyers. The smaller torpedo boats, more than sixty in number, had been already sent to shelter in Mairua Bay, in the island of Tsushima, on account of the heavy seas. During the morning, Togo received a succession of wireless messages from his cruisers, and every mile of the enemy's progress, every change in his formation, was quickly signaled to him. Shortly after noon, he was able to note that the Russians were entering the straits, steaming at about twelve knots on a northeasterly course, that they were formed in two columns in line ahead, the starboard column being the stronger, and that they had their transports astern between the columns. 
he decided to attack them on the weaker side at 2 p.m., when he calculated that they would be near Okinoshima, a small island in the middle of the eastern strait, about halfway between Tsushima and the southwestern headlands of Nippon. At half-past one he was joined by Dewa's division of cruisers, and a few minutes later the divisions of Katioka and the younger Togo rejoined. They had till now hung on the flanks of the Russian advance. At a quarter to two the enemy's fleet came in sight, away to the southwestward of Okinoshima. Flags fluttered up to the signal yards of the Mikasa, and the fleet read with enthusiasm Togo's inspiring message. The rise or fall of the empire depends upon today's battle. Let every man do his utmost. He had been about ten miles north of Okinoshima at noon, by which time he had steamed some ninety miles from Douglas Bay since five a.m. Thence he turned back slowly, going west and a little south, till he sighted the Russians. He crossed their line of advance diagonally at about ninety-five hundred yards distance. His light cruiser divisions had received orders to steam southwards and attack the Russian rear, and were already well on their way. The heavy Japanese ships, circling on the left front of the enemy's advance, put on speed, and were evidently intending to recross the bows of the battleship division, bringing a converging fire to bear on the leading ships, the maneuver known as crossing the T. As the Mikasa led the Japanese line on its turning movement, Rajdasvinsky swung round to starboard and opened fire at 8,500 yards. Togo waited till the distance had shortened to 6,500, and then the guns of the Mikasa flashed out. At that moment only three other of his ships had made the turn. They also opened fire, and ship after ship as she came round into line joined in the cannonade. The Russians turned more slowly, and it was some time before the whole of their line was in action. Meanwhile a storm of fire had burst upon the leading ships of Rajdisvensky's lines. The Suvorov and the Oslyabya, at the head of the starboard and port divisions, being each made a target by several of the enemy. The Japanese gunners were firing with a rapidity that surprised even those who had been in the action of 10 August, and with much more terrible effect. In Captain Simonov's narrative of the fate of the Suvorov, we have a remarkably detailed description of the execution done by the Japanese shells in this first stage of the battle. The opening shots went high. They flew over the Suvorov, some of the big 12-inch projectiles turning over and over longitudinally in their flight but at once Simonov remarked that the enemy were using a more sensitive fuse than on 10 August. Every shell as it touched the water exploded in a geyser of smoke and spray. As the Japanese corrected the range, shells began to explode on board or immediately over the deck, and again there was proof of the improved fusing. The slightest obstacle, the guy of a funnel, the lift of a boat derrick, was enough to burst the shell. The first fair hit was on the side, abreast of the forward funnel. It sent up a gigantic column of smoke, water, and flame. Then several men were killed or wounded near the forebridge, and then there was a crash beside one of the quick-firers, and the shell, bursting as it penetrated the deck, set the ship on fire. In the Battle of 10 August, the flagship Sarovich, which had borne the brunt of the Japanese fire, had been hit just nineteen times. But now that the Mikasa and her consorts had got the range, Hit followed hit on the leading Russian ships. It seemed impossible, says Simonov, even to count the number of projectiles striking us. I had not only never witnessed such a fire before, but I had never imagined anything like it. Shells seemed to be pouring upon us incessantly one after another. 
the steel plates and superstructure of the upper deck were torn to pieces, and the splinters caused many casualties. Iron ladders were crumbled up into rings, and guns were literally hurled from their mountings. Such havoc would never be caused by the simple impact of a shell, still less by that of its splinters. It could only be caused by the force of the explosion. In addition to this, there was the unusually high temperature and liquid flame of the explosion, which seemed to spread over everything. I actually watched a steel plate catch fire from a burst. Of course the steel did not burn, but the paint on it did. Such almost incombustible materials as hammocks and rows of boxes drenched with water flared up in a moment. At times it was almost impossible to see anything with glasses, owing to everything being so distorted with the quivering heated air. No, it was different to the 10th of August. In this storm of fire there was heavy loss of life. A shell burst killed and wounded most of the signalers as they stood together at their station. An explosion against the opening of the conning tower killed two officers beside Raj Dysvinsky and slightly wounded the admiral. The fight had not lasted more than twenty minutes, and the Suvorov, the Alexander, and Borodino, the three leading Russian ships, were all wrapped in black smoke from the fires lighted on board them by the Chimos shells. How was the Japanese line faring? I talked over his battle experiences with a Japanese officer not long after the day of Tsushima. He told me his impression was that at first the Russians shot fairly well, causing some loss of life at the more exposed stations on board the leading Japanese ships. But, he added, after the first twenty minutes they seemed suddenly to go all to pieces, and their shooting became wild and almost harmless. No wonder that under such a tornado of explosions, death and destruction, and with their ships ablaze, and range-finding and firing control stations wrecked, the gunnery of the Russians broke down. One of the pithy sayings of the American Admiral Farragut was, The best protection against the enemy's fire is the steady fire of your own guns. Tsushima gave startling proof of it. Semenov hoped that the Japanese were also suffering from the stress of battle. From the forebridge of the Suvorov he scanned their line with his glasses. In the sea fights of other wars, both fleets were wrapped in a dense fog of powder smoke but now with the new powder there was no smoke except that of bursting shells and burning material, so he could distinguish everything plainly. The enemy had finished turning. His twelve ships were in perfect order at close intervals, steaming parallel to us, but gradually forging ahead. No disorder was noticeable. It seemed to me, with my Zeiss glasses, the distance was a little more than two miles, I could distinguish the mantlets of hammocks on the bridges and groups of men. But with us, I looked round. What havoc! Burning bridges, smoldering debris on the decks, piles of dead bodies, signaling and judging distance stations, gun-directing positions, all were destroyed, and astern of us the Alexander and the Borodino were also wrapped in smoke. End of chapter 14, part 2